The well-being of our children is right at the top of every parent's agenda. And we'd like to think that it's quite high up on the list of the most important things for government too. But schools battling to keep up with the changing guidance and direction and policy U-turns, seemingly commonplace, throws this into question a little. While the pandemic has been a major disruption for everyone, it can sometimes feel that grades, exams and maintaining this flow through the education system has become the overriding priority. And maybe that's at the expense of our team's mental health. Hello and welcome to the Study Sessions podcast. I'm Nathan, the founder of The Study Buddy and your host. In this, our second season of the podcast, we're following six students as they head towards their GCSEs in 2021. Each week, I catch up with these very different teams to see how things are going in a one-to-one coaching session. With a panel of experts in our weekly podcast, we discuss some of the issues that come up. They could be broad themes, such as motivation or managing mental health, or they could be quite focused, such as how best to revise for a specific subject. These are normal teens, so you can be sure that we'll be covering a topic that your young person will be facing. So, if you're a parent, a carer or a teacher, be sure to subscribe. In this episode, we're talking about well-being and mental health. And I'm delighted to be joined by Natasha Devon, MBE, and Dr Dominique Thompson. Natasha is a mental health campaigner, author and broadcaster. Dominique, who you may remember from our very first episode, is a former university GP, TEDx speaker and author. Thank you both for joining me. Over the past week, all of our study students have talked to different extents about feelings of anxiety and nervousness and pressure. Robin, our homeschooled student, told us about feelings of being unsettled if the situation um, were to get worse and, and we had a second wave, and what would that mean to her sitting exams? And even our typically happy-go-lucky students, like Joe, talked about his apprehension of going back to school. Not really looking forward to it because I know it's going to be a very difficult year. Our school have set us another hour after school as well so that we have to stay behind for. So our day is extended, so we have to do even more work, which I don't particularly see as fair because if they've supposedly, according to the government, we're supposed to have worked for the whole of the time we've been off. So if they're giving us an extra hour, I don't see why uh, we have to do that if everyone's supposedly been working. So is this amount of pressure that our young people feeling part of a new normal? Well, I think if you don't feel anxious and stressed right now, you're not paying attention. And that's not just because of the pandemic, but also because of everything that's happening socially, politically, financially at the moment. And things like the injustices that have been uncovered by Black Lives Matter, that's affected a lot of young people. It just seems like there's a a lot of things that have come together in this perfect storm of anxiety-inducing stimuli if you like and I would defy anybody particularly when they're going through a kind of really pivotal time in their development to not feel that way but what I think is interesting about what you've said in your introduction is the anxiety about going back to school because just a couple of weeks ago the University of Bristol did a study that found that anxiety has actually gone down in 13, 14 year olds. So it's those teenagers not affected by the exam omni shambles, (laughs) but those who have been at home for a prolonged period of time, 
anxiety levels have gone down, not massively. It's about 10%. So 45% of girls and one in five boys still feels anxious. However, I think that does tell us something about the education system in of itself. And maybe the pandemic has just highlighted problems that were already there. I think it's really interesting that it's the that younger year have, um, as you say, reported feelings of less anxiousness about going back to school. And I wonder how much of that is uh, a reflection of, as you say, the amount of stress that schooling per se can give our children. And how much of that might just be a feeling of, um, that I can't really influence what's happening to me, so I might as well just sort of chill about it. Is that, is that the kind of thing that could be happening, Dom? OK, so I, I absolutely agree that that study has been really interesting because I don't think it was a huge shock to quite a lot of us who work with young people to find out that they were actually a lot of them less stressed not going to school. However, uh, I think it's a really complex picture because we know that obviously many of them did feel stress. It depended on what year they were doing, what exams they were doing, you know, what was going on for them. So I think it's quite age specific. And we know that once they get to about 18 and up in sort of young adults, um, they, they have been probably the most stressed group. So that, that, you know, there's real variety. I think it's a very complex picture because so many things are likely to have played into affecting anxiety. And it'll be everything from the fact they've probably got more sleep for the last six months than they have for a long time. They've been the master of their own day to an extent they have still been able to socialise because although they couldn't see each other face to face, they do it on social media. So for them, although it's nice to see your friends in person, it's not nice to see the school bully. So that, you know, they've got all the good bits and none of the bad bits for those where that's an issue. So I think there's been um, a whole variety of reasons um, that have really interestingly for a lot of us showed up what we suspected which is that school is pretty stressful for a lot of young people but for lots and lots of reasons not least of all that the school day starts when they should be half asleep or should be still asleep so there's lots and lots of things that I think have played into what's been an interesting sort of social experiment uh, that none of us wanted um so that you know I think that you know we could talk lots about it but I think a lot of it is to do with the fact they're not 24-7, on show to everybody else in their school and having to be their best self and get up at six in the morning to plan their outfit for the day and to make sure they look amazing to get through a school day, which, frankly, 20, 30 years ago never happened. So, um, you know, I think there are lots and lots of things that have shifted and that have given them six months of different pressure. So is that is that, um, I suppose, a silver lining, really? Is that something that's going to mean that the children, now that they are going back to school, are going to be better equipped to deal with the pressures? Or is this a store? Is it, is it um, I suppose the floodgates now opened and all of these feelings are now going to come rushing through and it's not going to be something that they've been used to? No, I, I don't think it's sort of storing up and going to be a floodgate. I think there's going to be a new anxiety about going back in a very different world that is different from the anxiety they had before, which was in that world where they had to be their best self all the time and be cool and funny and, you know, do their work, but not look like they're doing their work, but still seem to catch up. And, you know, all, all of that was going on, plus, you know, the stuff like, you know, spending a lot of time doing maybe homework and not getting outside or exercise or, or sleep. So there'll be different pressures. What I think the, the positive or silver lining might be from different people. It might be from the schools. It might be from policy that we realise that this mini experiment has given us some insights we weren't expecting 
and that no one was really paying attention or looking for and saying, well, actually, if it was that different, what could we keep that's good and what worked for them? So now that they come back, someone actually sits down and talks to them in more detail. Obviously, the researchers do that to a point, but, you know, they start with the basics. Did they feel better or worse? Okay, and then they might start to unpick the reasons behind it. And I think that will be the really interesting stuff. Do we learn anything from it? Or do we go, oh, that was interesting, move on back to normal? And do you think, Natasha, that actually that's likely to happen? I mean, the system, as I see it at the moment, um, having read reports over the weekend about there's a 50-50 chance we may end up having to um, cancel the GCSE and A-level exams next year, talking at Labour coming out today to say, um, let's let's delay the exams, it's the right thing to do. Is the system geared to look at these individual components and consider the individual child? Or are we more interested in supporting this whole route through to university and into the place of work more than we're interested in actually what is the state of the, the well-being of our children? I would really love it if what Dom is saying transpired to be true and we did look at perhaps I think there's a place for examinations within the education system but this kind of 90% reliance on exams in determining your final grade and uh, you know, the way that teachers have stepped in this year and said, this is what I think this pupil is capable of on their best day, you know, whether there's value in that. And also, uh, certainly from a personal perspective and the young people that I've been speaking to, um, being able to reclaim a bit of a work-life balance during lockdown and seeing how things like getting more exercise and uh, spending more time on my hobbies has actually improved my creativity like I'm, I'm one of those really annoying people that's been writing a novel in lockdown which is not something I ever thought I would be able to do because I'm used to writing non-fiction but I do feel that slowing down and uh, like I say reclaiming that work-life balance has done something positive to my brain and I'm sure that a lot of young people will feel the same way so I would love it if we could learn some lessons from that however as you probably know I do have some experience of the inner machinations of the Department of Education and government more generally. And my experience is that what we on the ground think constitutes an emergency or a very clear picture doesn't always translate as far as policymakers are concerned and who are kind of one step removed. And I think the thing that always sticks in my mind when we're having these conversations, I was having an argument with one of David Cameron's advisors. I said to him, look, can you explain to me why at its heart, you know, it, it, at the crux of it, the, the curriculum hasn't changed for 100 years. And obviously there's been all, all of these different um, sort of addendums put on, but the, the kind of core of it hasn't changed for 100 years, despite the fact that the world has changed so vastly during the past century. And he said, well, it's a very simple answer to that question. And it's because the curriculum works. And I looked at him, I looked at this guy who'd gone from Eton to Oxbridge to being one of the prime minister's most trusted advisors. And I thought, it has worked for you. And that's the problem. The people who are creating policy are by definition, the people for whom the system as it is currently works. So there's no incentive for them to change it. And Zenia, I think we've seen that, haven't we? That, that we've talked before on other podcasts that the, um, that the education system is geared to university acceptance. That's that's what it's all about, university, and that's and it's all about keeping. I think that that trend going, and certainly, as I say, with allowing more university uh, places 
um, by removing caps, that this does seem to be this trend of protect the system and all of it. How within that then do we help our young children? If, if externally the pressures are on them, is it more about how we can build their resilience? And I say externally, and I think here I'm talking much more about, as you said, the, the machinery of government, the wheels of power, and not, I think it's really important to say, the teachers within the schools and the institutions themselves, because time and time again, we know that they're talking first and foremost about growth mindset, about the, the learning how to learn, and the acceptance you need to teach for the test, and that kind of thing, I guess, is important. But is there something more that we should be doing in school then around balance, about increasing this love of learning? How, how can we do that as parents? I mean, it, these are really complex questions. And the, the frustrating thing is that we, we keep getting facts such as we have the unhappiest 15-year-olds in the world. And it's not the first time. I and mean, we've seen that headline this week, but we saw it two years ago when the PISA study was um, comes out every three years, showed then the UK did as well. It, it's not news and I really agree with Natasha about the curriculum and the way that we do things, this system that's set in stone. There's something about the UK education system that doesn't work in terms of well-being. But of course, people who are in power, as you say, or who manage policy will say, but, you know, we, we, we train international leaders and we, you know, um, uh, sort of churn out these uh, uh, Oxbridge type people and so on. And so they keep looking back at the very small minority <laughs> who, despite everything, get through it instead of looking, perhaps as we should all do, at places like Finland and say, what is it that they do so well that they have reasonably happy teenagers, very good you know, education system? teachers are valued and revered as some of the greats of society you know what is it that's different so there's there's the system bit which is really hard for people like us to fix despite being relatively loud and <laughs> banging various drums between us um we you know we're not going to sort of fix that at the moment but we can keep raising awareness so then then we're looking at well what can the school do within the system that it's working and that's where at least we feel a bit more powerful we can um, help and advise and support schools to do things to help with well-being and parents as well because more and more these days parents are involved they recognize how important their role is how much influence they have on their young person's mental health and well-being in a way again that has shifted over the last few decades so that's where i'm very careful about the world the word resilience because a lot of young people take it as implied incorrectly but but they can feel like we're implying that they're missing something and that, that they have to have it instilled into them, like hammered into them, and then they're full of resilience. Um, and actually, I like words like resourcefulness um, or teaching life skills, you know, things that are going to help them on their path and that will be useful at any time and basically means, you know, being adaptable and able to react and support themselves, but also have emotions and feelings and go up and down, which is all part of being human. So... We need to help them, whether we're a teacher or a parent or another member of staff that works with them, you know, the, the, the school counsellor or whoever, to 
be able to be resourceful when things are difficult. And I mean, there are, as you said, growth mindset. There are lots of theories and, and practices that people can do. I think as parents, the important things are to keep talking to them, have that open channels of communication and make sure that although they're going to absolutely naturally want to distance themselves from you because you're a parent and they want to bond with their peers, um, it's still okay to have lines of communication open that you will be there and that you are reliable. I think it's really important for when things do do get difficult. And then there's, you know, there's practical stuff. Make sure they have healthy behaviours so that they are uh, seeing your behaviours. <laughs> I say this as someone who does like ice cream, but maybe that they that they know that, you know, we all have difficult days and that occasionally ice cream may be the answer, but also exercise, getting outside, getting a good night's sleep, you know, model the good behaviours that you want your young person to grow up and then live. So I, I think it's about talking about modelling good behaviours. And then finally, you might want to talk to them about if they really need that extra little bit of help, you know, breathing techniques or relaxation techniques or distraction techniques, which are really practical, helpful, you know, and, and very doable things like, um, you know, the five senses distraction technique. If they're feeling very panicky and anxious and they're going to be sitting in class and you're thinking, oh, my God, how do I get them? I'm not going to be there with them in class. You know, work through them with them um, a distraction technique like the five senses of you know what's one thing I can see what's one thing I can smell what's one thing I can touch you know through the five senses and that can be a practical thing you teach them I agree with everything that you've just said Don but I I always think of resilience as if we can frame it as being something that originates outside the individual, then it's more helpful because resilience is often defined as bounce back ability which is fine. But then the, the natural next question to ask is, well, what does this young person's trampoline look like? <laughs> do they have connectedness in their life? Do they have someone that they can talk to? Do they have access to um, an environment where they feel not judged, where they feel part of a community? Do they have an endorphin producing hobby like exercise, for example? Um, and I think it's, it's a about the structure around the individual as much as it is about something to do with the individual's attitude. Absolutely. And then in terms of parents, from my perspective, as somebody who goes into schools and ideally, if, if it's feasible, I like to do a kind of triangular thing where I'll talk to the, the students during the day, then maybe do a, a twilight session with the teachers. And then in the evening, I'll talk to the parents. So I, I get to speak to really everybody uh, involved in that relationship. And what I would really like to see is parents being on teacher's side a little bit more, because I think that there is this mistrust that has been fostered over years and years and years, you know, not helped by the way that teachers are portrayed in the media. And for example, you know, when I wrote my last book, it was about exams. And the first thing that I did was I asked teachers why they thought there was so much pressure on young people to perform in their exams. And they unequivocally blamed parents. They said, all the pressure is coming from home. Then I asked parents and they said, it's their teachers putting too much pressure on them. Then I asked the young people themselves and they said, actually, both my parents and my teachers are telling me the same thing, which is that, yes, your exams are important, but they're not the most important thing in the world and to look after yourself and make sure you take breaks. This pressure is coming from me. It's self-perpetuating. And I think if everybody talked to each other and got on the same page, you could avoid a lot of this division, which I think it just causes unnecessary tension. And I think that, that teachers 
as has been said, are kind of combating a lot of the problems within the system itself, making sure that the ramifications of that are kind of softened on young people. They're working really hard to do that and they need support. And I think it should be parents who offer that olive branch. I think what will be really interesting is the another, I guess, another silver lining, if you like, of the pandemic is having seen uh, children uh, to to a greater or lesser extent with the re- the remote schooling and the I think many of us have now got a newfound respect for teachers and the teaching profession that this wasn't a case of going in chalkboards and um, rote learning. Actually, there's so much more to it than that now. And I wonder now whether what we'll see with parents is, as well as being on the same page, but actually much more of a partnership here. Certainly, I think that the next parents evening, and I've said this before, that we've uh, that we'll have about Emily will be much less about me sitting there and listening to what um, her English teacher is telling me, but much more about wondering what more is it that we can do together? How can we support? What is, what's our role in this? I think, as you said, there's, there is that fourth place of, in this relationship of three, if you like, and that is the media, isn't it? That <laughs> We've talked about this before, Dom, it's catastrophizing, that everything's very dramatic. And we've seen that in the news stories with the, with the grades, the pressure to do well, if it's not coming from parents who, even the really pushy ones that we might um, talk about the pushy parents, are still talking about we just want them to do their best, we want them to fulfil their potential. But there is still somewhere where children inherently know, or are picking up rather, that, that grades are important. That's what I need for my next step. I can't be successful if I don't. So is that is that the media? Is that some kind of external source that's that's having this detrimental impact on our kids? Interesting you should say that because um, one of the experts that I consulted with for my book was a guy called Dr. Thomas Curran, who did a groundbreaking piece of research back when he was at Bath University on perfectionism. And you might have heard of it because it was just everywhere. And he also did a TED talk. And what his research found was that perfectionism in Generation Z is just off the charts. And it goes back to what Don was saying right at the beginning about it's not enough to be good at your thing anymore. You have to be good at everything. And that leads to a fear of failure, which means that you never genuinely learn because everybody knows that you, well, in the words of Sir Ken Robinson, unless you, uh, unless you are prepared to fail, you'll never do anything original and you learn more from your failures, failures than you do from your successes. But also that they will avoid activities that they suspect they're not good at, that they will not put effort into subjects that they think they're not good at. So the, the net result is that actually they underperform academically because of perfectionism that's that's the great irony and it also is also evidence to show that the higher you would score on a perfectionism test the more vulnerable you would be to mental health issues and Dr Thomas Curran's theory about why this is is that this generation of teenagers were born into this neoliberal libertarian hypercapitalist culture And the message that they've had consistently from advertising and media from an incredibly young age is you must consume and achieve to prove your value. Never be content with what you have. And that, of course, is amplified by social media because on social media, you have to have sort of proved that you've done something every day and you have to document it. Otherwise, it didn't really happen. And what that has led to is this idea that it's not enough to just be that we, we're kind of outsourcing our self-esteem all the time. We have to show what we have and what we've done in order to have been of value to society. And it's 
having a devastating impact on their well-being. And Don, we talked about this, of course, in the first in the first episode, as you say, this sort of this fear of failure. And as I remember, the the fact that everything is competitive, as Natasha talked there about um, the Instagram photos of me living my best life and all of these kinds of things. This competitive nature isn't actually just against. Um, one child and another is it but it's also uh, against themselves oh absolutely so just um my tedx talk that i did about uh called what i learned from seventy-eight thousand consultations with university students was actually taking what i had seen with my 20 years of experience of seeing them and the fact that um I'd sensed and got the themes that then Tom and Andy Hill, who wrote that paper, Tom Curran and Andy Hill, um, both of whom I've worked with over the last few years, um, what they had demonstrated so beautifully in their in their perfectionism paper. Um, so I pulled themes from their paper and and the actual experiences of the students and put them together to just talk about it for ten minutes. And what what I pulled together was about the culture they're immersed in in the UK in particular, but it is international, that their whole lives have become a competition. So um, it isn't just the perfectionism, it's the fact that wherever they turn, anything and everything they do is judged against everybody else. So, you know, you can't just bake cakes at school, you have to have a bake-off, you can't have five-year-olds doing you know, painting and sticking on the wall. It, it has to be a competition. You have to have the photography competition. Everything is a competition from the, you know, the minute they kind of go to school and, and turn the TV on and everything they see. And and as I said, um, the one that probably uh, beyond cake, which really annoys me, competitive cake, um, is the fact that they've made love competitive. You know, oh, look, you're on an island and you might fall in love. What a ridiculous idea as humans to do that. So... The problem is we have that perspective where we can say and point and laugh and say that's ridiculous. But if you're 14 or 15, that is your world and that's what everyone's talking about. So that's the norm. And it just sort of soaks through into their DNA that they have to always be not just enjoy making a cake. They have to be the best at it and it has to be a tower and it has to have blue stuff stuck on it. You know, nothing can just be for fun. The problem is that obviously you'll still get some parents who say, well, life's competitive and, and, you know, they should be able to deal with that. And I say, yeah, but fun shouldn't be, you know, it's 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 about having downtime. And then we wonder why we've got unhappy 15 year olds and anxious kids, you know, and it's all tied up. The perfectionism, the competitiveness, the parents wanting the best, but not always getting the balance right quite because we're all there. We're all trying to say please do your best, but you don't have to be the best, but please do your best, but only because we know what the life is like that's waiting for them in this culture. You know, we've lived it. So we're trying to sort of very gently push them a bit, but not too much. <laughs> it's all really quite complicated. So I think these are all really important themes. And the more we're aware of them as parents or teachers or, or you know, people working with young people in all different fields, the more we can sort of do the thing about, you know, the emperor's new clothes. We can point and say, that's ridiculous. Look. So part of that that you've talked about of um, of wanting our children to do their best, not necessarily to, to be their best, but also as parents, what we also tend to do is veer them away from the, the mistakes that we've made in our own lives, typically. So... Um, I can see my son who is, um, the apple has not fallen very far from the tree at all. He is 
um, bright, capable, but equally um, very conceited and lazy. <laughs> and, as I say, that's, uh, I look at myself in miniature. Well, actually, not that no, miniature. No, he's quite big, but you are not like loud. that name. Um, I'm just I'm just seeking compliments um, but I look at that and think actually this is I can see this elephant trap that you're about to walk I can see it telegraphed a mile away let me save you from yourself by by removing you from that path and we'll, we'll veer you onto something else but as Natasha said very early on actually they need to make these kinds of mistakes for themselves don't they and ideally in a safe environment nothing that's going to have a lasting impact or detriment on their lives parenting i don't know whether it's now um that seems to be so much more instinctively about protecting and saving and bubble wrapping our children and and i can't help but wonder whether or not that's one of the biggest failings of modern parenting is is this this idea that actually my entire role is to keep you safe and safe at all costs i was i was reading an article yesterday actually that said that we've moved on from helicopter parenting now and and it's now being called snowplow parenting because it's almost like you go ahead of your child and clear the path. And uh, as you say, there are various pitfalls to that. And I, I was talking about this just the other day to a, a young woman who just left university. And she said, I, I really admire your career. I get this a lot because I've got a made up job. Um, so people going, you know, <laughs> how do I do what you've done? Because there's no kind of established pathway into my job. And um, it's saying, you know, I really feel like, like, you know, what should I study? And I need to get on it. And, and I said to her, I said, I appreciate that times have changed is different to when I uni left university. But you have to appreciate that I spent the entirety of my my 20s just titting about you know I, I did various bits and bobs which t transpired to be useful because they gave me a perspective that I brought into to my 30s but I was just experimenting finding out who I was making friends and that is what your 20s should be for and you know when you're having these conversations about education you always end up in this really existential philosophical place where you're actually discussing what is the purpose of life when you're on your deathbed what are you going to look back and regret and that's why it's great to be an educator at dinner parties <laughs> <laughs> i i think um there's something really interesting isn't there about uh the, the the idea that for parents now you know you're you're walking this really fine tightrope between you know there are so many experts and so many people saying what you should and shouldn't be doing and then we're seeing the mental health deteriorating of this young generation so there must be something that either we're not doing right or that we could be doing differently and is it us or is it the system or is it school you know so it's really pretty stressful but i think when we talk about our role as parents um and people say my you know the, the idea that you were saying there nathan is that my role is just to keep them safe I think of it slightly differently. My role is to make sure that when they leave me, hopefully um, the day he turns 18, um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's that he can cope without me. So when he gets shoved out of the nest and has to fly, he can do it safely enough to survive and hopefully thrive. And from an evolutionary point of view, actually that is our role. If you look at a mummy lion and her baby lion, 
she keeps him safe a bit, but actually she's teaching him how to hunt, how to find the best, you know, food or the best nest or whatever else, like place to stay. The point is she's not spending her whole time just looking out for predators and the rest of it. She's actually teaching him all the skills so that he can manage without her. And I think as parents, we should aim for less for constant safety and actually something that I talk about in the book for parents is secure insecurity, which is you let them go a little bit further. You might be ever so slightly uncomfortable, but actually that's the way they're going to learn where the boundaries are. And the minute you see they are straying, actually, and they are a bit close to the cliff edge, you hoik them back. But actually letting them scare themselves slightly about being close to the cliff edge is actually part of the learning. And yes, of course, you know, we mustn't go too far and you don't want them wandering into traffic, but it's only by you holding back and making sure it's secure insecurity. So they feel a little bit, oh, I'm at the edge of my boundary. And every each age group, that will be different. You know, when they're three, it's going to maybe be running to the bottom of the garden without you and then looking back and kind of like, oh, I'm at the bottom of the garden and you're over there. And then when they're 13, it'll be going out on their bike to school, wearing their helmet and their backpack and everything. And you're like, oh my God, please don't let them be run over. But actually... You know, I get asked by mums when I give talks. I had a mum the other day say, oh, I'm, I'm really worried. I've been thinking I perhaps should be letting my son, you know, get the bus to school on his own. And I'm not really sure. And da, 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 da. And we had this conversation. I said, sorry, how old is he? 15, nearly 16. And she wasn't letting him get the bus on his own. Now, well, I get that she's a concerned mum, but really, you know, I thought, what's she going to think of me? I put, I'm putting my son on the bus at 10 on his own to go to school because it's a bus full of kids and that's what they have to do. It, it, you know, but it, we all have this different spectrum. I'm not absolutely not judging. What I'm saying is, but we do have to be real about the fact that by the time they're 18, 19, they have to be able to do this by themselves. So secure insecurity is the way to go for me. That's my little catchphrase. I think also, I mean, there is an aspect there of the, the parents, and I absolutely fall into this as in myself, of actually putting ourselves into that slightly uncomfortable position because actually we are used to protecting them. And so knowing that actually in the long run, they need to to grow, to learn, to to push the boundaries and and appreciate risk for themselves. Actually, we as parents need to do that too. We need to let them get to the end of the garden, knowing that actually it's it's going to be fine, in order that they can then progress to the next stage of, of risk management. Absolutely, like. and so it's secure and security on both sides. No, obviously you have to be comfortable. You have to be sure that, you know, if they're saying, you know, I'm 16 and I want to go off, I don't know, I mean, I know at the moment it's a bit tricky, but I want to go on a holiday with my friends. You know, you, you have to have sort of boundaries. They have to understand what's safe, what's not. Is it just to Dorset or are we talking, you know, Greece, you know, in terms of safety and being far away? Obviously, you find your own, you know, your own place uh, within that secure insecurity. But I do think we're probably not doing that as much as we should as a society. So absolutely not judging individuals. Everybody knows their own kid best. But it's it's about perhaps letting them just find those boundaries and push them a bit and see what's safe rather than automatically going, oh, my goodness, no, that sounds dangerous. Come back. 
Because Natasha, presumably there's an element of um, of healthy well-being and, and, and mental health that comes from actually knowing that you as a teen are growing, that you are finding these things out for yourself, that there's an element of, of accountability, of responsibility, of taking control that all contributes towards this, this rounded sense of self. Autonomy is incredibly important and this is the one thing out of everything that he said, he said that I actually agree with Jordan Peterson on, <laughs> where he talks about happiness not being the thing that you pursue, because it's a byproduct of purpose and connectedness and being heard and understood and having autonomy and feeling in control and um, having a sense of achievement. And if we sort of work on those things then the happiness will come but I I think that, that there's a fundamental misunderstanding when we're talking about well-being and and mental health and, and people being happy people don't understand what happiness is they mistake it for euphoria and in fact it's it's more it's not that you never have challenges it's not that you're never in a bad mood it's the opposite of the feeling that most people are carrying around all the time, that things aren't quite right. And that, that kind of low level anxiety, it's the opposite of that. <laughs> That's what we're aiming for. And it's really difficult to package up and crystallise and, and sell, which is, is why I think so few people um, are aware of it. Mm. And as you say, we talk about it like it's some kind of nebulous concept and, and striving towards this constant state of happiness and nothing ever going wrong is a much easier concept, isn't it? I know I understand that, but actually I don't understand, sort of, as I say, this, sort of, this, this fuzzier idea of, of well-being if it's about all these other aspects. Yes, and one of my best friends is called Sheru Izadi. She's a, a habit change specialist. She used to work um, for the NHS as a key worker in addiction. And then she took what she learnt from the way that addicts recover and applied it more generally to um, the everyday habits that more people struggle with and she she wrote a, a really interesting book about it called the kindness method but she, one of her catchphrases is don't just do something stand there <laughs> because what she says is the healthiest thing sometimes that you can do when you experience an uncomfortable feeling is to just sit with it and try and work out why you feel that way um and just work through it and that's, again, a big misconception about what I think mental health campaigners like myself are trying to achieve. We're not trying to insulate young people from any kind of uncomfortable or unpleasant feeling. We're trying to help them to work through it in a healthy way without feeling the need to be in kind of perpetual motion and to put that and, to, you know, to make decisions and to put that feeling somewhere because that can lead down a really toxic path. And so then in relation to going back to school, which is, of course, where we started, actually, it's I think then what I'm hearing is that that parents shouldn't be dismissing these feelings that children going back. So whatever it is that's caused them um, and whatever that feeling is, actually, it's it's for the child to work around it, draw on a toolkit um, and look to, to plug in those gaps so that when they do go back to school, they're in a position where they, they recognize the feelings that they're having and how to work through them. I think part of the problem 
and again, this has exposed something that's more generally an issue. Because of advances in technology, there's this real gap in understanding between young people and their parents because the kind of cultural landscape in which today's young people exist is so very different that parents have nothing to compare it to, really. And that's, you know, no parents of young people now have lived through a pandemic. So it's, they keep saying it's unprecedented for a reason. And I think that the tendency is, I mean, I'm not a parent, but I do have uh, nieces and nephews and a godson. And whenever any of them ask me for advice, my first instinct is to think back and go, OK, what happened to me when I was your age that is applicable? But in this instance, there is nothing. So it's even more important, I think, to just ask open questions and find out really how do they feel and what can you do to help uh, rather than to kind of project our own experiences. Because, Don, we talked about this before, The um, this one of the things about this situation, um, and we were talking about this in relation to the GCSE results coming out, was that actually there is no point of reference. As Natasha says, you can't ask your big brother, what was it like when you got your results? Because there isn't that. There just isn't that point of reference. Oh, no, absolutely. I think um, that's been one of the most difficult things for everybody is not just the uncertainty at the moment and the not knowing what's going to happen and how long it's going to last and all of that. But the fact there's no one we can ask for, you know, advice who actually, you know, can give you a sort of sensible um fact-based answer we're all just you know postulating and suggesting things and I mean some of the suggestions and and the advice are, are perfectly good perfectly reasonable you know principles that we can all live by but it is incredibly difficult for everyone and we're all just getting by the best we can and I think for for parents sending their children back it's a really mixed feeling at the moment I'm seeing loads of kind of memes on on the social media and Facebook is full of mums doing funny cartoons about you know half of us wants to send them now and they don't start till Friday or whatever but actually just go you know we've had you for six months and on the other hand we're terrified that they're going to get ill or that they're going to actually I think for a lot of them they're not actually as worried about an infection as they are about the stress of a very different life where you know their, their teacher can't come too close to them and if they're crying who's going to hold them and you know those funny everyday things that we just didn't worry about before because we knew if they fell over in the playground someone would run you know, rush over to them and hold them. So so I think um, I'm obviously at the moment mainly focused on the primary school kids there. Obviously, if you're a 15-year-old lad, you maybe don't want someone to rush over, but I'm fine. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's all of those questions make it a very, very difficult time at the moment. The only real comfort is that absolutely everybody's in the same boat, and I mean everybody. So wherever you are at the moment, in the world, we are all in the same boat. Um, I've tried to do something practical. I've done a free, absolutely free, sort of five-step guide for the autumn of COVID-19 comes out tomorrow. But I think, you know, everywhere, the good thing is we are all in the same boat. We can be supportive. We understand, you know, there's, um, there's a genuine sense that we will support each other through this, you know, with our friendship groups and and uh, family and the teachers and so on. I'd like to um, provide a link to the um, to the guide yeah. um, in whichever place you've got it, and we'll include that on the episode uh, synopsis, if we may. Um, so the last thought I wanted to wrap up with, that Natasha talked about um, it's important for us as parents to ask um, open questions 
because we haven't got a point of reference where we can say, well, back, despite what my children think of me, back when I was living through the Spanish flu, this is what we did, um, there, is, there, is no, there, there is nothing comparable. So asking the open questions, and then I think it seems to me that, again, drawing on everything that we've talked about here, that the, the, this failure, this, and, and it being okay to have these setbacks, actually and then being honest about, actually, I don't really know, but but what I reckon is that why don't we try this? And, and that level of honesty that the parent can then deliver to the child, actually, I'm not in a position of, of all-seeing oracle-like knowledge all of the time, most of the time perhaps, but certainly not all of the time. So let's puzzle this one through together. And it seems to me that that, that could be a a productive way of, of moving forward. I have lots of mums actually phoned me this summer at various different times struggling with, you know, having a teen around the house 99% of the time. You know, what, what was coming across was, okay, there were issues with, you know, their teenager wasn't behaving as they felt perhaps the teenager should, which is a separate issue, but also you know, the mums usually were also really struggling because, you know, they were trying to work or they, you know, they were having to manage everybody being in the house or, you know, there were lots of things. And I said, well, have you told them as well how you're feeling that it's difficult for you to, you know, not to put it all on them, just to say, do you know what? I think right now we're both finding this quite challenging. So why don't we do this together? Now, I know some teens will be more receptive than that to that than others. Um, but I do think it's worth remembering, you know, the parents have had a really tough time the last six months. Um, so, yes, it's been hard for the 13, 14, 15 year olds, as we were talking right at the beginning. And we know teachers and so on have worked absolutely flat out. But the parents have had a really difficult time. I know a few have said, oh, do you know what? We've really enjoyed lockdown, <laughs> which not many, but a few have found it a positive experience. But actually, the vast majority that I've come into contact with have it's it's been pretty tricky. And I think it's okay to say that. You know, you may be the parent, but you're it's all right to say, well, it's been a challenge, hasn't it? But we've got through it, or here we are, and you're off back to school, college, uni, whatever. And actually say, you know, it's been tricky for all of us, but well done us. We've we've got this far, really. I also think it's really important to bear in mind one of the frustrations that I have with mental health campaigns, some mental health campaigns, is there seems to be this focus on just talk, just talk. And I think that's not only victim blaming in instances where people, for whatever reason, can't talk, but it also fundamentally misses the point that it's not talking in of itself that has the therapeutic value, it's connection. And connection doesn't just come th through talking. It comes through shared experiences, shared activities, just being able to be with someone and feel accepted and not judged. And that if you have that kind of reciprocal relationship that Don was talking about, that in fact, both the parent and the child can benefit. And there's evidence to show that when you feel connected, it actually improves your brain chemistry. So you, you walk away with better clarity of thought, more able to make those big decisions, um, which I think we all need right now. My thanks to Natasha and Dom for a fantastically interesting and wide-ranging discussion around such an important topic as the mental health and well-being of our teens. This is a critical point in our young people's lives, and it's perhaps more important now than ever to coach them through rather than try to fix and protect them from what's happening around us. 
between lockdown, cancelled exams, and this extraordinary return to school process, we're all in that uncomfortable position of not actually having the answers. We've no experiences that we can relate to or draw on to help our teens. But actually, maybe that's okay. There comes a point when supporting our teens isn't about handing them a solution, but rather being able to be with them and puzzle through a problem. We've heard from our experts that resilience isn't so much a skill that's learned as the outcome from many other important traits and attributes. And all too often, we seem to shield and insulate our children from these setbacks and and possible anxieties. Whereas we should be looking to sensitively manage their exposure to those uncomfortable feelings. That's how they'll learn to recognise situations and develop appropriate responses. Without it, they're going to be ill-equipped to deal with the inevitable challenges that will come their way long after exams and even COVID and nothing more than distant memories. Thank you for listening. I hope you found this episode reassuring and positive. If you have enjoyed the episode, I'd be grateful if you'd leave us a five-star rating. It really does help us to reach others who might benefit from what our experts have to say. And of course, as ever, you telling your friends is another great way and always very appreciated. There'll be another episode next week, so don't forget to subscribe to the Study Sessions podcast.